0: Hey, folks, before we get to today's episode of the podcast, I wanted to say first, thank you for continuing to listen to the Total Soccer Show throughout the World Cup, even with the USMNT eliminated, we greatly appreciate people sticking with us. But we also understand if you want to check out other podcasts, too, listen to this one first and then check out other ones. And one I'm going to point you to directly is the Football Ramble. It is a wonderful way to uh, get your soccer coverage, but some lighthearted fare as well, uh, or combined, I guess, together would be a better way to put that, uh, because you're getting daily coverage of this World Cup all the way through the end of the tournament, covering uh, the biggest teams, obviously focusing a lot on England. They're an English podcast. I'm guessing you're going to get some love for England and maybe some frustration with England depending on how things play out they started in 2007 at a kitchen table they have grown from there they now have their own independent empire and they are one of football's most important independent voices so join them every morning for a slightly more light-hearted look at the nonsense that is this world cup search football ramble in your podcast app to subscribe and listen now And welcome to an exit survey edition of the Total Soccer Show. Graham and Joe just got to see me do the intro with my hands above my head. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and it's been over four days since last we talked about the U.S. men's national team which is obviously unacceptable. So on today's episode, we're going to go over a series of polls we put out on Twitter to gauge supporter sentiment about the team, their performance at the World Cup, the manager, and what comes next. Here with me to break it all down are two fine fellows. Up first, a man with whom I discussed the USMNT yesterday on his podcast. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Hello. Yes, Taylor was kind enough to join me on both of our day offs for an episode of the Backfield
1: Show, where we talked about how USMNT players can continue to improve and, and that will help the team ideally close the gap between, you know, them and the soccer elites of the world. So we talked about Gio Reyna's hamstrings, getting healthy, getting on the field. We talked about a lot of different stuff. Taylor, I'm excited for this conversation, though, because it's going to be super rational, very mm-hmm. logical, and it's of going course. to be it's
0: going to be great. It is going to be great. It's going to be you, me, and one more person. Rounding out our three-man crew is the conductor of the Roberto Martinez, or Roberto Martinez, uh, for him, uh, hype train. (laughs) It's Graham Rutherford. Hi, Graham. Are you excited to make your passionate argument for why Roberto Martinez should be uh, the manager of all of the different teams you care about? Not just the U.S., but also Scotland, (laughs) uh, Sterling Albion, whoever else you need. Um,
2: Sure. Why not? I mean, it is a weird quirk of fate, fate that Roberto Martinez actually has roots in Scottish football. So he played for Motherwell and I believe See? his wife is Scottish. So I'm a little bit fearful that somewhere along the line after Steve Clark's cycle has kind of ended, he is going to get
0: linked with a Scotland job, isn't he? That, that, that fills me with fear. <laughs> oh, <laughs> joys. I like that uh, I, I immediately sandbag Graham with a question that he would not be happy to answer, whereas Joe got, uh, Joe, we had a conversation that we would have been having anyway, but it was recorded that time. Uh, so on that note, let's talk about the U.S. for a moment. Let's try to keep it, uh, try to keep it happy until we get to the, the Bobby Martinez question. Uh, up first, the first question we asked, how did the U.S. M&T perform at the 2022 World Cup? the overwhelming majority about 77% of the vote said exactly as expected uh, around 19% said better than expected and 4% said worse than expected joe does this kind of fit with where you are on the team in their performance absolutely
1: and and i, I wish it didn't right i wish we could say the us should be getting into the quarterfinals every single time but we got to look in the mirror right it's it's just not quite there yet for this team getting out of the group was an accomplishment. I I think, generally speaking, this World Cup was a success for the USMNT. It created a greater appetite for 2026. I think it created a greater appetite to see these players play and continue to grow as a group between now and 2026, which is great because there is a giant void, really, of meaningful games between then and now. There's Gold Cups, there's Nations League, maybe there's a Copa America, so those things are building and we're getting more meaningful games. But yeah, getting knocked out in the round of 16 by the Netherlands has to have been a tournament that went as expected. I want to know who the 4.1% are that that wanted the U.S. to go further because I want to hang out with those people and, and develop <laughs> that kind of optimism because I am I just wasn't there yet coming into this tournament. I think, generally speaking, this was a fair mm-hmm. competition and a fair result for the U.S. men's national team.
2: So I think if you take a, a broader look at this tournament for the U.S. and getting to the round of 16... I agree. It went exactly as expected. It was pretty much par for the course for, for this team and historically for the US. This tends to be where the US aim for, where they get to. I, I would probably, though, look, being taken a little bit more of a nuanced look, I'd probably be in the better than expected category. And, and I don't think we went over the top after those September friendlies, but I can't revise things. I, I was concerned after those games. And it was at that point that it dawned on me that this world cup could be a calamity for the us so the fact that it wasn't a calamity was a relief that that that, that was a good thing in black and white terms, the USMNT making the round of 16 wasn't an overachievement. But I think when I look at how the US played in periods of the four matches, they were better than I than I feared they would be. The Netherlands game was a rough one, but in the three group group games, games the the US controlled periods. The first half against Wales was good. A lot of the match against England was good, and the first half against Iran was, was good. And you could argue the second half and the way that they held Iran at, at, at arm's length was also good, just in a different way. So when I when I look at it a little bit more in depth, I would probably be in that 19.1% that said it was better than expected, just because I I did fear that this World Cup could be a disaster. And then you're looking to 2026 of what have we got to build on? And I was I was already in that cycle. Maybe that's the Scott in me, the pessimist in me. But yeah, I'd probably be in, in better than expected.
0: Yep, that's about where I am, Graham. Uh, somewhere between exactly as expected and better as expected. I think I expected them to get out of this group. I thought there was a chance they could do it with seven points or six points, uh, but that they make it out is, is certainly a positive and what I was hoping for. Uh, they don't get destroyed by the Dutch, and even in that game re-watching it, there are moments when the U.S., if not looks dominant, I don't think they ever looked fully dominant, but they looked like a team that was holding its own, and it wasn't the shelling that we saw against Belgium or we've seen in past World Cups, and it was also a positive for me that very rarely has it been the case that the U.S. kind of has their own fate in their hands. So often it's the U.S. loses their last game of the group stage, but somebody else also loses or somebody else draws. And so the U.S. is able to advance that way. So I like that it was the United States having something to play for, getting that result, booking their spot of the next round and and sort of helping me forget some of those friendlies, including a friendly against Japan that they lost. And now maybe there's. Uh, a little bit more positivity about that one, too, given how good Japan looked. So, yeah, I think I'm somewhere between exactly as expected and better than expected, which does feel like where the majority of people were. Uh, second question How do you feel about the direction of the USMNT now compared to before the 2022 World Cup? Uh, once again, an optimistic response uh, 58% said better. Uh 39% said about the same and about 3% said worse. Uh Graham, I'm assuming you were one of the three <laughs> percent.
2: Yeah, I mean that is my natural default setting. Um but no, I I would I guess I would have to say I feel slightly better about the direction of the US team because as I just said, the World Cup went slightly better than I was expecting, but it's it's not a it's not a drastic change, in my opinion. As you kind of detailed there, Taylor, that the team held its own against some high-caliber opponents. So that makes me feel like this group will be more experienced and better off for that experience by the time the 2026 World Cup comes around. If this World Cup goes badly, then you don't really have anything to build on. For 2026, you're almost kind of erasing the experience of 2022. Yeah. So that, that they have a good experience is a positive. And then the infrastructure changes made across American soccer... I think you can gauge at this point, have led to something. You you can see the potential of the team after their performances at this World Cup. And of course, the next generation of players needs to be just as good or even better than this current crop. But there is good reason to believe more players will fill in the gaps in the current team. And I don't know if that happens before the 2026 World Cup. I guess, fingers crossed, for a, a number nine and two centre-backs. Um, but generally speaking, in terms of the direction of the team, it does feel like things are progressing in the right way. I I think I, I held that opinion before the World Cup, this the 2022 World Cup, but it's just kind of solidified that opinion, I think.
0: Joe, is that about how you are? Because for me it is sort of looking at that next generation that has me feeling even better. This squad already uh, pretty talented, obviously, and, and fairly deep, maybe not as deep as we wanted it to be, but there is depth there. But a lot of people were asking me uh, when I was watching uh, here, here at home, you know, is, is this the golden generation? Is this the best we're going to be? Will we continue to get good players? And, I feel like all signs point to yes, that we still have players coming through uh, with their teams in MLS, but even in USL, we have players moving abroad, we have players succeeding abroad, we have a lot of, a lot of young players who are already uh, playing overseas and could also make that next jump. So it feels like, if anything, in 2026, we are more poised than ever to have like, very talented players left off because other very talented players are there. I I agree with that. So I'm a little less
1: bullish, which is not to say that I'm not bullish. I'm a little less bullish about the next crop. So I I just think we need to see more of them. I'm really curious to see more of the U-20s and the U-23s, which we'll get to see at the 2024 Olympics. There'll be a few overage players in there as well. The U-20s did great down in CONCACAF, but that's not like the best barometer, nor nor are really results at the youth level and youth tournaments a really good barometer for how good your players are going to turn out to be at the pro level. So I'm not sure really where I stand on the next crop of players. I want to watch more. I want to think about it more. I I feel optimistic about the direction of the U.S. Men's National Team, less because of the next generation and more because of the current one. And I I think I probably held most of this before the tournament, so I'm guessing I would have answered about the same in in terms of the actual question that we asked on Twitter. But it's encouraging to see a bunch of 20-year-olds, 21, 22, 23, and 24-year-olds go out there and play with two of the best teams in the world in England and in the Netherlands, and get a, a massive result in a must win game against Iran. Like those are encouraging signs to see these young players go out there and and if not shine, at least perform and, and not embarrass themselves, right? the US was not embarrassed at this competition. I think generally they held up well throughout this tournament. Fast forward three and a half years from now, those same players, Christian Politics, 24. He'll either be, I, I, because the World Cup's in the summer, I don't know when these people's birthdays are, but he'll be 27, 28. Yunus Musa just turned 20 during this competition. Dest is 22. Tyler Adams is 23. McKenney's 24. That's what encourages me. It's less about the next generation coming behind them, although I, I think, I hope we should be encouraged by them. And it's more about, Taylor, what you and I talked about on, on the show that we did together. It's about this idea that the U.S.'s core is talented already, but it's young and can continue to improve like seeing Yunus Musa after a full season or two full seasons playing as an actual central midfielder in a top European league, like he is going to be a much better player than he is today. That is a microcosm. I think the US is going to be better in twenty twenty six than they are today, and that encourages me.
0: Yeah. But put it put a different way, and shots not meant to be fired, but when Julian Green comes into the twenty fourteen World Cup team, there's a feeling of he's a dual national, that he's offered a spot on the roster so that he'll choose the United States. This is what I have always felt, at least. And he, and he makes that decision. He goes in with the team. He scores a goal against Belgium. He is not a bad player. He is not a proven entity. We don't have a ton of sort of video of him. We don't have a ton of experience with him. And so there is hype for him. There's excitement for him but it's also that that same excitement we felt about youth players who are training with Bayern Munich or training with, Schalke, training with Schalke or whomever it may be, and it's that they could be good, we just don't know, whereas to your point with Yunus Musa, who turns 20 in this tournament, we have multiple seasons now where he's been playing at a high level in La Liga and succeeding and, and could get a move or could just become more of a star performer, but it feels like with the majority of this roster, we have more video of them. We have more sort of data to back up that feeling that it's a talented team that can now push on to that next level. I'm still interested in how positive people seem to be about the team and the direction. Uh, As we get to maybe questions about coaches, that positivity seems to turn. Before that happens, Graham, let's get to the third question. Did you find the USMNT enjoyable to watch at the 2022 World Cup? How However you define that, uh, that was an important distinction I think we threw in there. Did you find the USMT enjoyable to watch at the 2022 World Cup, however you define that term? Before I give the answer, Graham, I would love to know your, I guess, like slightly neutral take on mm. this one or slightly more neutral. Uh, did you enjoy the US? Because I, I think we talked about it with the USA-England game. I thought that was like this riveting, captivating, back and forth, really tense game and it was pointed out to me later that that might have been because I had a rooting interest in it, whereas for neutrals that might have been a very boring game.
2: Yeah, and I had a frame of re- frame of reference for that exact experience because I had exactly the same uh, watching experience for Scotland England a year before, where as Ryan kept on drawing comparisons to because he felt the same way as, as an England fan. You know, Scotland were probably the better team in that game, kind of took the game to England, but it never really resulted in any goal-scoring opportunities. And so afterwards, I remember being drenched in sweat and thinking that was the most captivating thing I've ever watched in my life. And then some of the neutral analysis of that game was that will not be remembered at the end of the Graham, tournament. Were you, so, Graham, were you drenched in sweat because you were wearing two pairs of socks like a psychopath? <laughs> I think I was wearing more than two pairs of socks for that oh, game. You know, It was an, an exceptional occasion during Dangerously, enough. Yeah. all right. Yeah. Wow. But yes, I, 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 I get, ex- I get what you mean, Taylor. But looking at the World Cup in general, I did enjoy the US enjoyable to. Uh, I did find them enjoyable to watch. Also frustrating to watch at times because it felt like they were on the brink of becoming a really good team, and that final step never really happened. And I can't, I can't remember who it was. that tweeted. Maybe it was Miguel Delaney, or it was, it was a, a journalist, a, 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 an English-based media journalist of, of note. I think it might have been Delaney. But he basically said, This US team is two thirds of the way to becoming really good. And and that final third was missing. And that, that was frustrating. But when the US played with tempo and its speed they were they were good to watch. They scored two very nice goals, the obviously the Had You Right one being the best of of, of course. No, the <laughs> the the, the way and the Pulisic goal come from different situations, but both were well constructed goals and, and the sort of thing we want to see from the US at the World Cup or wanted to see from the US at the World Cup. So the US certainly weren't among the least enjoyable teams to watch at this World Cup. They certainly weren't Poland or, or Mexico but they did lack the final Product that would have made them one of the most entertaining teams at at this World Cup. So I'm not saying they are, I mean, who has been the most enjoyable team to watch at this World Cup? France have been enjoyable, I guess, to watch. Portugal the other night. The US was nowhere near that sort of level, but generally speaking, I did enjoy watching them. The
1: way I would have chosen to answer this question, I deliberately didn't vote in any of these polls. I wanted to, but I figured I'd just wait so we could talk about it on the show. I would have answered yes to this question. I'll do that now. Because the way I define, you know, were the USMNT enjoyable to watch at the World Cup is almost relative to other teams. I think about the US. Yeah, there's a lack of real attacking firepower that breaks through in the final third, and that is the biggest issue with this team. I'll bring that up later when we talk about Greg Berhalter and what's next for the team at the managerial position. But I think, I think the US was still a better team to watch and looked, you know, more like a soccer team that we might see play regularly throughout the club season than 75 percent. Other teams in this competition. I I don't think that's too high of a number. They're not France. They're not Brazil. They're not Spain. They're not Germany. They're not Portugal. I mean, there is a line here, but I thought the U.S. played some pretty enjoyable tactical soccer, which is maybe just my nerdy side really enjoying that. But yeah, generally speaking, I thought the U.S. was enjoyable, not through every minute of every game. There were boring stretches for the neutrals, certainly. But I would wager that even those boring stretches were probably less boring than some of the other matches in this competition.
0: Agreed. And I also think there were moments in all three games where I, I just had a, like a, a momentary thought of like, I haven't seen the U.S. play this well before, not just this team, but broadly speaking, the, when there would be moments when there'd be a long ball like brought down with one touch by a player, but in that one touch was also a pass. So they like settle it and pass it with one touch. And then it's like a little reverse flick. And then it's an outside of the foot. Travella spread out wide. Like there was just little combinations in there that showed how, unified this team was and how much they'd played together, but also just that there is more ability there. And so that first half against Wales, I thought was one of the best halves I've seen from them in a very long time, the second half less so. But the entire game against England was the US holding their own and really taking it to England. It is telling to me that every England fan or media personality I've spoken to says the US were the better team. I wasn't sure we were going to get a, a draw out of that one. It felt like uh we talked about this on the show, that Southgate maybe recognized that the U.S. were sort of being the dominant team. We're just going to sit deep and take this point and we'll be fine. That wasn't what I expected. And then for them to go into that final game against Iran, who had shown that they, too, could attack and defend very well and be a, a, a hard-fighting team for the U.S. to get the result that they needed and get the win, I thought that was pretty entertaining. The Dutch game was probably the least entertaining game, not just because of the scoreline, but because it felt sort of pretty done about 44 minutes in but with all that said i still found them pretty enjoyable so i would go with the 86 percent of respondents who said the u.s was enjoyable as opposed to the 13.8 percent who said not as enjoyable
2: the the US had, so I kind of have a bit of an outsider's view, given I live in the UK, and, and they had a lot of praise heaped on them, after particularly after that England game. I saw Louis van Gaal. He was kind of contradictory with some of his praise, because I think he said the US were, were one of the best teams in this World Cup, and then in the very next sentence yeah. basically implied that the Dutch had played at like 70% or something to, to win that game. So I don't know how he truly feels, but... There, there, ha, there has been a, a lot of praise of this of this US team outside America, so it's not just a, a sort of insular thing. But also that the US were they were a better tournament team than I was expecting them to be. You know, we, a big thing was made of the youngest group at, the, at this World Cup and the, and the youngest lineup the US has ever had at a major tournament. And Taylor, when you talk about that Iran game, the way they managed that match to get out of the group, you know, the most important match. Um, you could argue that in a, in a way that's more important than the last 16 games certainly for Berhalter because if he loses that then he's probably gone you're talking about a rebuild of the whole program um, and again I, I guess in terms of losing the Dutch game that is more inconsequential than losing the Iran game to manage that expectation to impose yourself in the game in, in the first half then toggle in the second half to go to a slightly more conservative approach and see it out that was the sort of experience, experience isn't maybe the right word, but it's, it's, it's the sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was streetwise from the US in a way that I wasn't expecting to see from such a young group. So that was one of the, mo- the the more enjoyable things for me was seeing how this group, and maybe that's just due to them playing at the top level of the club game. Like these guys are not Julian Green who is playing for Bayern Munich 2 or whatever. Like Wes McKenney Gio Christian Pulisic Sergino Dest all these guys playing the Champions League for big clubs like they're used to must win occasions and so that was a very encouraging thing for me was to see how they actually handled tournament soccer
0: we are through three of the 10 survey questions. Plenty more still to come. Best player, most underperforming player. Uh, should Burhalter be back? All that's still to come. Let's take one quick break and get back to our survey in just a second. Hey, folks. This is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between, but no matter what... Welcome back. Uh, I'm assuming you never left. I hope you never left. Uh, Next question coming to you, Joe Lowry. Who is the USMNT's best player at the 2022 World Cup? We had as options Tim Weah, who got around 6% of the vote. Matt Turner, who got around 5% of the vote. 83% of the vote going to Tyler Adams. 6.2% going to someone else. And that someone else... Based on Twitter's responses was a little bit Tim Ream, uh, Frank Riley, amongst others, said uh, Tim Reem completely changed the way we could play at this tournament. Doug Bernstein, meanwhile, Pulisic contributed all three goals. You can't sleep on that. A lot of people felt that we were being discourteous for not including Christian Pulisic on this list. We'll talk about Pulisic in a second. First, I want to talk about Tyler Adams. 83% for Tyler Adams feels high, but also feels accurate at the same time, Joe. Yeah, that
1: is the correct answer.
0: I think it maybe should have even been higher than 83%. Tyler it sounds Adams- like, sorry to jump in. It sounds like it would have been a few people, I would say harshly, saying that the Dutch goal was entirely his fault. So you've got to knock him for that. And hmm. so that dilutes his performance a little bit. Maybe that's true, but... To some extent, I think if your best player has one-off moment in four games and has pretty locked-down performances everywhere else, I'm I'm okay with that mistake. I think
1: I am, too. You wish it comes in a different moment. But I, I really yeah. was about to say, you know, Adams maybe is knocked out. I didn't even read those comments on Twitter, oh, really? but I was about to say something very similar. I think that is likely weighing pretty heavily in people's yeah. minds, and, and to an extent it should, right? That is a a pretty inexcusable moment that, Graham, you were wise to highlight from the jump. I do think some blame can be spread around in that sequence, but the Dutch nail everything and it makes Tyler Adams look a little bit silly in that moment. And and that's a moment where you realize, okay, there is some more maturing left to be done. There is still some time for him to to season and to learn from that mistake. But yeah, on the whole, Adams was, I think, the best and the most standout-y U.S. player in this competition. He was getting praise from everyone, both inside U.S. media and outside of U.S. media, He was everywhere on the field. There were other good players as well. Matt Turner, Tim Weah, both among them. Christian Pulisic, at the end of the day, I think among them as well. Uh, but Adams is
2: the guy for me, no doubt about it. I I saw Tyler Adams in a good number of team of the group stage teams, like 11s for for the entire World Cup. Not obviously not just for the US. Um, so he was getting a lot of praise from outside America. He was exceptional in that in that group stage. The amount of ground he covered. The the awareness of danger, just how he's he is links up the defence in the midfield and makes that compact and not easy to play through. Obviously, it kind of fell apart a little bit in that in that Dutch game. Um, another player, I think, had Tim Tim Weir repeated his performance against Wales. If we'd seen more of that performance, I I, I probably would have had him as the US's best player but he never really had that same incisive incisiveness again. So he is below Adams in my power rankings. And Taylor, just until you mentioned his name there, I hadn't totally considered Tim Ream. But in terms of his consistency over the four games, I mean, he doesn't yeah. have a bad game, does he? Even, the, even the Netherlands game, I don't know yeah. if you could... I guess the, the cutbacks, maybe a little bit more awareness to step out and try and certainly the ones down the right side from Denzel Dumfries... But that last goal is not really his fault either when Jedi Robinson gets pulled inside and Dumfries and De- is left at the back post. So I don't know how much blame you can pin on him for the game that all went a little bit wrong against the Netherlands. So maybe in terms of consistency... Tim Ream was the best performer for the US at this
0: World Cup. I hadn't I hadn't totally considered him until you mentioned you mentioned his name. Yeah, I mean, I think you can always kind of go through and find those little mistakes, like nitpick those little moments. But for the most part, we don't have any like obvious giveaways where he lets a counterattack happen. We don't have him getting burnt for pace, at least in a way that really costs the United States. We don't have any costly individual mistakes from him like maybe we do with Walker Zimmerman, or like we do with Walker Zimmerman. So I think there's a, a strong shout for Tim Ream uh, in that conversation. As I said, uh, uh, Graham, there's a a very large shout for Christian Pulisic. Yeah. Should we have have had him as a shortlist candidate here?
2: Not for me. No, really? I know okay. he produce. I know he produces the the big moments, and obviously he deserves praise for that. But in terms of his general influence on on matches, I I, I didn't feel like we saw the best Christian Pulisic at this World Cup. There were there were moments in games, quite large moments in games, actually. Um, where it felt like he was going back to the bad Christian Pulisic, where he's taking too many touches and and trying to do things a little bit too much on his own. And in the moments he did deliver, like the first goal against Wales, that is what you want him to do. You know, there, there's a he's very good Christian Pulisic at that at that first part of a, of a of a transition move. It's the latter part that he he falls down with. And there was I can't remember what game it was. There was a moment was it against England potentially where. He does that first part very, very well, and then he has a couple runners around him, and you're looking for the pass, or you're looking for the shot, or the next bit, and he just continues to run, and he gets, and he gets tackled. Wales um, as well,
0: he did in both. Yeah. Games well, so yeah, there was a
2: couple moments like that. It didn't really feel like he had a great influence in terms of the the flow of of, of the matches at this World Cup, even though in the big moments he
0: he did show his quality. Uh, Chuck Klosterman once wrote. Uh... An article that I read that was like uh, the most accurately rated bands of all time because we either always say band like bands are overrated or underrated. So he was going accurately rated, and I think it was the Beatles. He said people say the Beatles of the best are the best band of all time. They are correct, so they are accurately rated. And I feel like Tyler Adams is is on this list for us because we had super high expectations of him. I'm getting back to Pulisic with this. Uh, we had super high expectations of him, and he delivered. He stayed fit for all four games. Uh, he has the mistake against the Dutch that aside is just such a lights out performer a leader he has the press conference moment and I think even with the lofty expectations we had for Adams he still found a way to exceed them Pulisic, I don't think any of us are saying he was bad in this tournament. I don't think any of us are saying he was poor or even had a disappointing tournament necessarily. But I think we had similar expectations for him as a veteran player, a leader of this team, one of the key attackers, one of the most high-profile attackers, if not the most high-profile. And when you see it through that lens in my mind, the set-piece delivery stands out, some of that delay yeah. on the ball, some of that like lack of incisiveness – it means that he had a good tournament, but I wouldn't have put him in that best conversation the way I would with other players who I think played above their their status. Joe, does that vibe with where you are on the Pulisic conversation? I think it does. I, I
1: struggle with this because Pulisic, Pulisic is penalized. In my mind, and I think a lot of people's minds based off of the role that he's asked to play in this team, in a couple of different ways. The first is, he's not a player that's best suited to break down a block. He's not. He likes to play an open open play. He wants to run at somebody in transition. He really shouldn't be taking set pieces for this team, and I don't know whose fault that is, whether that's Pulisic's fault or whether that's Berhalter's fault. Uh, maybe it's Tyler Adams' fault as captain. I don't know who whose shoulders that that ultimately falls on, but Pulisic is penalized because the U.S. and the way that, that Berhalter wants to play doesn't really fit his Best skill set. And part of that's on as well because he hasn't developed into a well rounded attacker at 24, which is concerning, right? So there's that. There's also the fact that I think we naturally penalize attacking players for trying to be creative. And maybe this isn't intentional, but for every perfect through ball to Tim Weah, there are going to be three or four or five or even 10 moments that don't come off for those kinds of players. You can apply that same logic to Mbappe, right? Mbappe is going to make a ton of mistakes in a game. But he's also going to break the game open. I'm not saying Pulisic is Mbappe. But I think we are sort of naturally biased against that next tier of creative players underneath the world's best. Like Messi, Messi doesn't mess up as much as everybody else. That's what makes him so good is he tries these ridiculous things and he pulls them off. Pulisic tries them. He doesn't pull them off as much as everybody else does in in that world's elite tier. But he still pulls them off more than most other U.S. players. And that, that means he is an important player for this team. I probably would have put him in thinking about it now over Matt Turner in this top three of Adams, Polisic, and Weah. If you're looking for players that tangibly impacted games, Turner was was great in this tournament, or he was good in this tournament. He didn't have, like, all that much to do. The Dutch goals were virtually unsavable, all of them. He comes up with a couple of saves in the group stage that are big and does have a couple good moments against the Dutch as well, and then good with the ball at his feet. But Polisic, I think, maybe had the bigger impact. I still don't think he's number one. Tyler Adams is number one for me. But, yeah, it, it, difficult in some ways to contextualize Christian Polisic's performances.
2: Yeah, I, I can handle an attacking player who tries things and, and they don't come off. I remember going back to the Wales game and this isn't a perfect analogy, but the, the US kept on putting balls down that right side for for Tim Weir, and, and a number of them went out of play or they went out for a throw-in and I remember saying in that game, keep doing that, that's that's fine. That, that That is an outlet that that is productive for the US. There's something there for the US on that right side. Keep doing that. But Pulisic, for me, his frustration is that he... The, the final b- product doesn't come from him so that if he was taking shots or although I, I would get frustrated with that after a while, but if he was trying to play passes through and, and it, the problem is he takes too many touches. He goes into blind alleys. He turns round, he stops the momentum of move of, of attacks. And he is, he's so much more capable than that. It just feels like whether it's Chelsea or the U S he ends up in that sort of spiral and I think we saw signs of it at, the, at this World Cup, even if, as I say, he did deliver in the big moments. Those are the good bits. The the bad bits are are still the same bad bits we've we've been saying about Christian Pulisic for three, four years. They were still there yeah. in that World Cup.
1: Yeah, and, and that's the thing, though, Grant. I think we kind of just said the same thing. Like, we just said there's good bits and there's bad bits. And I, I'm thinking... Maybe we don't value the good bits. i don't I don't know that I disagree, right. I, I think Pulisic still could have had a much better World Cup than he did. The set piece of stuff I really don't have any excuses for a lot of the deliveries into the box. They don't have any excuses for even some of the the moments where he doesn't release the ball in transition that you described. that's a great pick by you because he should play that pass. There are lots of mistakes here, but man, I mean, Doug's right. he He contributes to all three goals that the u s. score in this competition that should count for something. He is the one that is playing these passes that sort of open up the game, right? He finds Tim He scores the goal against Iran with a great box-crashing run. And he does play the assist to Haji Wright to get the U.S. back into the game against the Dutch. I don't know how to properly assign credit or blame in those moments, but Polisic, I think, does deserve credit at the very least for helping the U.S. get on the board in this tournament, which is something that they otherwise struggled
0: very much to do. Uh, they also did not struggle uh, to to keep the ball out of the back of the net. I'm going to say because of Matt Turner, who is that's part of the reason why he was on this list. That is a clunky transition, but basically, I wanted to say about Matt Turner. It's interesting to me that he, you're right, Joe, doesn't have, like, the obvious high-profile moments really one way or the other. He has a few big saves, but there wasn't that game where it was like, ooh, Matt Turner is the reason we got out of that. And in a strange way, to go back to an earlier question, that also has me feeling better about the U.S. Because if you look back, like, historically at them succeeding in tournaments— in 2002, Brad Friedel has like a penalty save against Korea and has a bunch of big moments that keep the tournament alive for the U.S. In 2010, Tim Howard does the same thing, but then also like the iconic moment of that tournament for the U.S., is the Donovan goal against Algeria, which features a Tim Howard 60-yard throw or whatever it is because he was so important in that game with his distribution but also making saves. 2014, amongst others, he has the Belgium game. There is always a discussion of the U.S. would not be good if it weren't for their goalkeeper. And so in a way that Turner is... Not even really that big of a talking point, in some ways, is progress in my mind. But with all that positive, there are still some negatives. Let's talk underperformers for a moment. Uh, Which USMNT player underperformed the most at the 2022 World Cup? We gave... Three options, and then uh, allowed for some write-ins. A few of the write-ins to come, but the uh, the main vote getter with thirty-eight point nine percent of the vote was Jesus Ferreira, In uh, second was Shaq Moore with thirty-three point nine percent. Walker Zimmerman in third with fifteen point six percent. Graham, did this go about the way you thought it would in the voting?
2: I guess so. I mean, I suppose that I suppose the parameters of what underperformance is is quite important in this context. So in hindsight maybe I wouldn't have had, and I think I might have come up with the players for this, maybe I wouldn't have had Shaq Moore on the list because I didn't expect to even see him on the pitch in Qatar. So it wasn't surprising that he didn't light the place up. And then even with Jesus Ferreira, there are caveats. So he was he was pretty poor in the 45 minutes he played against the Netherlands. In fact, he was very poor in the, those 45 minutes. Um, but he's dropped into a, a, the the, USA, the USA's most important game having not played at all until that moment. And it's at that point my criticism with criticism with regards to Freire turns to Berhalter um in terms of his selection. So um I'm gonna kinda go a little bit deeper here on, on Berhalter and Ferreira and, and my confusion on that whole World Cup for J for his Frera. International managers make unpopular selections and there's no way to please everyone. And Berhalter isn't alone in facing criticism for the selections that he he makes. I think that comes with the territory of being a national team manager. I think every national team faces it, manager faces that. But let's look at someone like Gareth Southgate. So he got heat for sticking with Harry Maguire. But when you get to the World Cup, you can see his plan with him. So, so England are going to have moments where they're sat deep and big slabhead Maguire just heads balls away like he did against the USA. So the, the purpose in his selection becomes clear. What was the purpose with Ferreira in this cycle? Because it seems like Baralter gave him a huge number of minutes in qualifying only to get to the tournament itself and decide that's not what he wanted. In which case... Why was Frera in the squad at all? Was this t- team not set up for him to succeed in this team? And then that that then qualifies my opinion of how he played when he he did make the pitch for those forty five minutes against the Dutch. I don't think Berhalter. And this is becoming this is veering into criticism of Berhalter, but I think it's relevant with his Frera. I I don't think Berhalter is a bad coach, and I I think there are some parts of of the past cycle that he can take real credit for. But his management of the number nine pool, and I know we get, it was like the, the never-ending talking point leading up to this World Cup, but I think it still has relevance. I don't think he managed that well at all. And so with his Ferreira, I have a bit of sympathy for his performances at this World Cup. He had a very disappointing World Cup in that he, he made no impact at all, having played a massive part for the US throughout qualifying. I just don't know how much of that is down to him and how much of that is down to Berhalter and the environment.
0: I think that's a fair distinction. Uh, two two things there. I think, like, like we said, how would you define Is the U.S. was the U.S. fun to watch or enjoyable to watch? I think it is probably important to understand the underperformed aspect because I think, like Shaq, Shaq Moore is in there. I can't remember if I added him or somebody else did, but I would have put him in there because I thought he was bad when he came on. I thought he looked like he just wasn't at that level. I think he was a little bit overwhelmed by the occasion. I mean, who wouldn't be? It's the World Cup. Uh, but you would want the answer of who wouldn't be to be the players who were there. So I think like in that way, like he didn't have a good tournament, but then you're looking at is that a, that might be a poor tournament, but that's not necessarily underperforming, which is what I think you're getting at with Jesus Ferreira. Yeah. And, and I I think I, I largely agree with you. My theory with Ferreira is that basically throughout qualifying, he was the best of a bad bunch that nobody was really separating themselves. Nobody looked good. Ferreira was the one who did the most within Greg Burhalter's structure that allowed other people to attack and Ferreira chips in goals here and there. Obviously he does so at club level, but I, I think for the longest time it was basically Ferreira by default. And then suddenly Sargent catches form. Peefock is scoring goals. Haji Wright is scoring goals. Even Ricardo Pepe is rounding into form and now there's more of a conversation. So I think Burhalter goes with basically the two players in Haji Wright and Josh Sargent that he thinks Can score goals, can do the most actual number nine work, but if you're leaving Jesus Ferreira off, that feels like a slap in the face. That also feels like it will be a major talking point of why did you play him for the whole qualifying and then not play him or not even bring him? So I think it left him in this sort of strange position of including Ferreira but not being entirely sure when and how to use him. And so we ended up with him starting in that knockout round game when I think the U.S. didn't expect to have as much of the ball and did expect to press. And and so I think in that way, it is also a disappointing tournament for Jesus Ferreira, maybe not of his own doing, but, but maybe by circumstance, but also when he does play, he ends up getting pulled at halftime, I believe. So it's not as though he had a, a really like next level performance there. So I, I think that's where I end up being okay with Jesus Ferreira as the top of this list, harsh as it may be. Joe, how say you? I think Ferreira is probably my answer to this question as well. I did
1: have some expectations for him coming into this tournament. So... I wanted better. One of the other comments, so that we got here, yeah. Taylor. Sorry if I'm stealing your thunder. No, there's two good did, ones. Did did make me think as well. So this one is from Tim Kachur. Tim Kachur. I didn't have yeah. many. Okay, yeah, yeah. There we go. We, we know I didn't Tim. Have, That's the only reason why I'm. Oh, I see. You. Okay, good. Sorry, Tim, for butchering your last name. <laughs> Thanks, Taylor, for fixing that. I didn't have many expectations for the guys above. Tim says, but I did for Yunus Musa. Yeah. I thought he would be the breakout player, but he was just fine. And and I agree with that. I think I ah, I mostly agree with that. I think Musa was better than fine. He was spotty on the ball. But this is another one of those cases. I think we're we're biased to thinking more about the on-ball stuff than the off-ball stuff when we watch soccer. That's kind of just how our brains work, and it's hard to to train ourselves to think differently than that. Musa defensively was everywhere, right? He was covering so much ground. He put in shift after shift. I think if you take Musa out of this team and put in even someone like Kellen Acosta or, or put in a Luca De La Torre at sixty percent, and the team maybe doesn't even make it out of the group. So he does deserve credit for that. And I don't. I, I think my answer still is Ferreira to this underperforming question. But Musa. I thought was set to be like a top three, top five breakout player at this competition. I'm not really sure he was that.
2: Yeah. yeah, he was he was quite ragged in some of his performances on the ball. Certainly, all the games merge into one, particularly yeah. because we we watched them all in that Bleacher Report studio uh, as well. As at least the group games, and I can't remember there was a first half of a game or twenty opening twenty minutes of a game where we were all saying to each other, Eunice Musa is coughing up the ball way too easily here," and so that's kind of stuck in my mind with him in terms of his World Cup performance. But I, I still think he had a generally. Decent World Cup, but but I, I accept that the bar was very high for him, and I I was I was with uh, with Tim who tweeted us
0: basically that I thought um, he was going to be one of the breakout stars. Yeah, uh, so I think uh, weirdly, Yunus Musa probably would end up being on my list with that argument of I had really high expectations. I'm not sure if he reached those. Maybe that's unfair of me. And Joe, you're right. I'm probably more focused on the on-ball stuff than the off-ball me too, stuff. Me too, me uh, too. One more in terms of underperformers. Uh, this one comes from, I'm going to do my best to uh, pronounce this one, Jean-Guy Bouvoir. There we go. I made it French. Haji uh, Wright was terrible. I don't want to hear about the goal. It was a complete fluke. It bounced off the top of his foot, planted on the ground. I mean, that was an incredible, deliberate backheel. I don't know what uh, Mr. Bouvoir is talking about. <laughs> No, I would Chriscus agree. Awards. And, and I think we can remember the defensive work he did specifically against England in that 4-4-2 and screening England's double pivot and really limiting their effectiveness in the game. But I think for all of the conversations we had about Pifok and Pepe being left out of this team, we assumed that Haji Wright was there because he could be a difference maker, because he could be that player who in form, could score goals, could be a threat, could be the vertical threat, but could also uh, link up and combine. And I don't feel like we saw that. I feel like we saw him do defensive stuff. He gets that goal, but I agree. I don't think it's, it's really even that he's like throwing his body at her or making something happen. It's just sort of a fortunate moment. So in that way, I think Haji Wright is a player that I would also have on the underperformers list. Joe, where are you on Mr. Wright?
1: I don't have a lot of strong feelings on Haji Wright. I think That's he fair. was fine in this tournament in as much as like the U.S. number nine pool is just a big bowl of soup right now and you can kind of pull anyone out. Sargent I think was the best looking nine at this competition for the U.S. and I would like I wrote this earlier this week I would like to see Sargent get sort of the majority of the minutes when he's available going forward barring any changes at club level or changes coming into national team camps but yeah right I thought was okay and not really much more than that.
0: Uh, one more question, then we'll take a break. Uh, this one, which area of the USMNT performed the best at the World Cup? Uh, for people who were wondering what our like, contrarian sample size is, it's 2% of the voters because 2% of the vote went to the attack in this question. Uh, the defense got around 18% and the midfield got around 80%. Uh, the, similar to the Tyler Adams numbers, I think we see how yep. much people valued that midfield, Joe.
1: Yeah, this is the correct answer in my estimation. I know the midfield has some, some poor moments against the Netherlands, but so does the defense, and really so does the attack. So you can spread that all the way around. The midfield was not perfect in Qatar, but this team does not function without that MMA midfield or or at least doesn't function without a couple of those members on the field together. We saw them start every single game of this tournament. There's a reason why it is the midfield. That is the answer. And I sided with the 80%. I like, I like to hang out with the majority Taylor. That's all it is. (laughs) Uh, Graham, is that
2: a retweet for you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm not sure I've really got much else yep. to add. I saw Daniel Sturridge call the, the USMN, USA midfield, excuse me, class.
0: So hey. who's, we can't argue with Daniel Sturridge. We cannot, nor should we. Uh, we will take one quick break and then we'll come back to talk about the biggie. Should Greg Berhalter return as the USMNT head coach? Back soon. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. Welcome back. The big question I teased at the break, should Greg Berhalter return as USMNT head coach? Uh, I will give you the answer, then I will give a little bit of background on it. Uh, 18.2% said yes, give him a new deal, this of 1600 uh, 1600 plus voters. So 18.2% said yes, give him a new deal. 81.8% said no, it is time for a change. Now we had a few people message to say, that This wasn't about Burhalter. It's just about I am opposed to a second cycle. I don't like the idea of uh, one coach being there for eight years. A lot of other people saying basically that he did well. He met their expectations or even exceeded them but that they wanted a new new manager to build on that and bring in some new ideas and sort of build on that platform uh and and so i i think the 81% isn't quite the, again like genuinely two different people were like i'm saying no but not because i'm like a burhalter out person but because i want things to change so i, I do think that 81.8 is a combination of different mentalities, but ultimately the majority of people saying no, Greg Berhalter should not be back as coach. Joe, what do you make of those numbers? Uh, not
1: surprised. If anything, I kind of thought it would be further skewed. Yeah, That's a we're crowd. all on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. It is almost <laughs> impressive that that many people that answered this TSS tweet will be in favor of Berhalter coming back around. So. First, I want to start with the whole second cycle notion. I'm pulling a lot of these thoughts from Henry Bushnell, who wrote a piece for Yahoo recently. He's been in Qatar covering the World Cup, doing
0: a great job talking about. the Still the haven't m- ever seen the two of you in the same location, Joe. And I'm not not convinced that you aren't the same people. Yeah, great guy Henry's a great dude love that guy yeah really really...
2: you know the first Harry Potter film where Voldemort's on the back of the guy's head (laughs) and he unwraps Henry's on the back of Joe's head Graham I'm not gonna lie I haven't
1: seen that movie but I'm watching it tonight this is not even a joke I'm actually already that's on the calendar it's happening tonight and then I'll come back and retroactively laugh more at that reference. <laughs> sure.
0: Anyway. We'll put it in post. We'll edit yeah, in. yeah, great.
1: Henry wrote this article for Yahoo about the myth of the second cycle. And everybody's like, oh, that doesn't work. Those those managers can't succeed. He wrote this. Seven holdovers from 2018 led their same teams to Qatar. Not a big percentage. Five of those seven are still standing among the eight quarter finalists. A sixth, Al-Youshise, led Senegal to the round of 16 where he lost to a fellow second cycler, Gareth southgate only one of the seven belgium's roberto 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 oh my word roberto martinez <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, it's catching it's either mess up the first martinez.
1: name or, or mess up the last name like british people do only one of the seven belgium's martinez failed so I, I think that is a really damning piece of evidence for people that think managers cannot succeed in the second cycle that is just not true that has never been true 2022 points it out very clearly you can go read the rest of Henry's article for, for more. He cites more data points and has has more good stuff to say. But that's where I wanted to start. So it's not as if bringing Greg Baralter back is automatically going to tank the U.S. because second cycle managers fail every single time. That said, I think I lean much more towards the it's time for a new voice in this group because I I'm hoping that there's going to be somebody out there that can continue to elevate this team. I don't know if that's possible or not. Really, I don't because I don't know which managers, and we'll talk about this in a second, I don't, know, I don't know who is the logical choice to build on this foundation. I think Greg Baralther has built a, a very nice foundation for this team. I have frustrations with a lot of the decisions he's made on the personnel side for years now, even on the tactical side here and there, and, and throughout this tournament. I think there are issues that I have with all of those things. So I think I would like to see a new manager come into play. But for people who are automatically saying, no, time for a change, literally anyone could do better. I would kindly invite those people to to suggest who they think it could be and try to plot out, you know, how that's going to fix the U.S. The most important part for the U.S., the biggest indicator of success, the biggest thing that's going to elevate them as a group is developing better players. It's it's helping the current ones get better. It's getting the next crop in and hoping that those players are really good too. That That's what's most important. It's not the manager stuff. Berlter's done a lot of things well, but I, I lean towards the the attacking third play needs to be better. There's a few of these different things that I would like to see changed. So yeah, I would go, it's time for
2: a change, but it's not
1: as simple, I think, as a lot of folks want to make it
2: out to be. Sometimes when you get rid of a manager, and Joe, you kind of you kind of touched on this idea very briefly there, but sometimes when you get rid of a, a manager, there's a sense that any other manager will improve the situation, that anything else will be better than what you have. So I think back to... Newcastle United, when the takeover happened, Steve Bruce, there, the sense there was we, it doesn't matter who the manager is, it's going to be better than Steve Bruce. They get rid of Steve Bruce and then they assess who they want to be their next manager. I don't get that sense with, with Berhalter. And that's that's where the element of risk is for US soccer. They could do worse than Greg Berhalter. The, the team, that team right now, that group, doesn't hate each other. And that is genuinely worth something. I, I, I say that in jest slightly, but not really. You look at... That some of the, the national teams at this World Cup that flopped, Belgium, Mexico, there's a couple others in there as well. And the common thread is that it's not it's not a happy camp. It's not a happy dressing room. So the fact that Baraltar has has created that environment that players want to play for the national team, you have dual nationals who would have a shot of playing for another national team, choosing to to play for the US, that's worth something as well. So, yeah, I think they could do worse than Baraltar. Equally, though... They could do better than Baratter, and and with some ambition, I think they could make a, a better appointment for the 2026 World Cup. The difficult part might be that they now have to keep Baratter hanging while they explore other options, which isn't a great position to be in if at the end of that process you decide actually Baraltar is the best possible candidate in terms of who would actually take the job. So I don't envy the position that U.S. soccer are in right now, and I know maybe people on Twitter aren't always willing to give U.S. soccer a lot of uh, USSF, a lot of uh, sympathy, but I think this is a difficult position they're in right now because the U.S. at this World Cup were par for the course. They get to the round of 16. I think if they get to the quarterfinals, it's an easy decision. You keep Baralter for the 2026 World Cup. If they go out in the group stage, it's also an easy decision. You get a new manager. I think this is a -A 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 difficult position they're in right now. Yep
0: and And I think if you're u s. soccer and you want to make the decision to renew him, The numbers that we've already talked about today sort of back that up. 58% of people saying they feel better about the program now than before the tournament. 86% of people saying they felt the U.S. was enjoyable to watch. There are positive numbers there. There are certainly also negative things. I do want to talk about some of the specific negatives here in a second. But I first want to suggest, and I would like for you all to either uh, dunk all over this one or agree if you want, but I have a feeling that about Berhalter, there is just a prevailing ambivalence. That there is not a passion in the pro side. There is certainly passion on the negative side of Burhalter out. But I think Greg berhalter, he speaks very candidly Biden. He's dry. He speaks very candidly, but very <laughs> sort of like it's not boring, but it's it, it's it's very like sort of unemotional. And what are the things that like people celebrate about Greg Burhalter aside from him being a coach? It's like the bat like, The the behind-the-back passes, it's his footwear, but he is not a personality. I'm not saying we need a personality, but I think about, like, Louis Van Hall was, when we get to the list of, like, who should take over if not Berhalter, Louis Van Hall was a popular candidate, and you look at his press conferences and the way he engages with the media. He's also obviously a very accomplished coach, but there's a personality there. And I think with Berhalter, it's harder to find the things to say I love him because of this. He's great because of that. He does this really well. There, there are. It's, it's, it's all very nuanced. And like, well, the midfield, he helped develop them, and he's put them together in a way that makes them function better. Yeah, but we don't have a striker. That's true. Like, it's, it's really, Like, it's, it's sort of. I think it, it's a. I think there are a lot more people at the end of the day who probably feel like, yeah, maybe when when asked, should Burhalter be back? But also, I, I think those same people, if you bring him back, will be like, yeah, okay, we'll see what happens. And I think if you don't bring him back those same people would say, like, yeah, okay, let's see what happens. That seems to be where most people are on Greg Berhalter. And to be honest, it's where I am as well. I think he has done so many positive things in his time as coach. I'm not here for the people who are like, he's done nothing. He's terrible. He hasn't. He won the Gold Cup. He won the Nations League. He beat Mexico plenty of times. This program
2: was on the floor in
0: 2017. (laughs) Exactly. And he deserves credit for picking it back up, bringing those people into the camp that you talked about, Graham, the dual nationals, and making them choose the USA over – The Netherlands over England. Unis Musa talked about how much he liked playing for the U.S. and how positive that camp was. And Greg Berhalter deserves credit for that. He deserves credit for getting the U.S. to the World Cup, for getting him out of the group. There are legitimate reasons to be critical of him. Don't get me wrong, but I think if you want to do that, you also have to acknowledge that there are positives there and it's not nearly this like he's gotta go he's terrible there are reasons why u.s soccer will want to renew him they are uh having those conversations now who knows if greg berhalter will want to be back uh who knows if he will look for another gig uh but i I think that sort of is is important table setting uh for me uh joe i turn it to you now it is and i I, taylor i I love so much of what
1: you said there i think the, the biggest reason that I come back to about why you wouldn't keep Greg Berhalter is that I think there's pretty clearly room to elevate this team even further. I know they're incredibly this young, me but there is another step, right? There is another step or two or three or five or ten in this team, even in this current crop of players. We talked you know, only 2% said the attacking players performed the best at this World Cup relative to the midfield or the defense And that feels about right to me, right? Maybe that number should be even lower. The attacking play needs to be better. The U.S. is good at controlling games, and that is super important. That's very, very helpful when you're trying to go out there and win soccer games. If you have the ball, if you're in control, the other team's not, and they don't have the ball. And that's great. That's very, very helpful. But at the same time, you have to go one step further. As good as the U.S. did at controlling, as, as good as they were at controlling games in Qatar, and even through stretches and qualifying you know they were rarely if ever dominant and that is where i think the next step needs to be against teams like wales and iran maybe less so against teams like england or the netherlands but i mean there's there's room to improve there were a myriad of frustrations that i had with greg Berhalter throughout world cup qualifying times where it looked like wow this team is lost and and those are real those those didn't happen it's not like those just It's not like those moments just disappear off the face of of time and history because the U.S. goes to a World Cup and doesn't embarrass themselves. Those are real things that I have concerns about should Beralter come back. So, again, this is why I fall into the camp of, yeah, I probably would look for someone else because I think there is room to elevate this team. Not that Beralter couldn't do it. I think he could. I think he has it in him to continue developing this group and making them play better soccer. But I... I would like to see a higher profile manager, someone with a better pedigree, who we have evidence of coaching at a, at a high level coming in. I don't know if U.S. soccer can get that person. They have not done their homework at all if they haven't already been looking. Like that should have happened y- years ago, maybe months ago at the very least. They should be doing that stuff already. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't know. But if you can get a high profile manager for 2026 who's a good coach, you you do it. I think it's it's maybe malpractice not to, But again, I don't know what the interest level is going to be like for this U.S. job.
2: I want to see U.S. soccer's pitch deck and who are the candidates in that pitch deck before kind of making a a decisive call on whether I think Beralta should get called back or not. Because I go back to what I said right at the start. I think you can do better than him. I also think you can do worse. So I, I would need to know who the candidates are. And that, and that's the process that should be happening happening for them now. They should be exploring who would be interested in taking that job because particularly after a major tournament, there will be options. Uh,
0: a couple of things that I, I want to, to talk about for a moment before we get to who could replace Greg Berhalter if he doesn't come back Um Matt Doyle had a series of tweets after the USA-Iran goal where he was just pointing out how many times the U.S. has scored that goal of sort of diagonal ball over the back line, headed back across or chested back across, and then someone is there for the tap-in inside the six-yard box. And I want to spotlight that to say, like, that is a moment where the U.S. has clearly had practice at running this play, like, opening up an opponent in that way when they are bunkered, when they are playing deep. That is a positive With that said, in that Wales game, I was still sort of like, put numbers forward and fingers crossed, hope we score. We didn't know who would be the number nine. We had thoughts it would be Sargent, but we weren't sure. We weren't sure how they would attack. And so there are moments where the U.S. does have those attacking patterns that you want to see. But they are, if not few and far between, then they are less easy to identify than I would like them to be. And so while there is progress there, I agree. I think there's just there's not enough development in the attacking play. Uh, Graham? You did a great job of pointing out that Jesus Ferreira selection becomes a bit of a head-scratcher, and it's that type of decision that leads to just confusion about the team. So I think that is a good one. The, The set piece, they hire a set piece coordinator. I didn't see any impact of that. It doesn't make sense to keep Christian Pulisic on that one, other than you don't want to hurt his confidence. But at a certain point, you've got to make that decision if you're the manager. Uh, and I do think it's the manager who makes that call. I thought some of his substitutions came too late, or there weren't enough of them. And I thought even his in-game tactical tweaks were leaving a lot to be That's one of the desired. biggest things for me. Yeah. And so uh, that's where I come back to. He has done so much for this program. Where I am, honestly, is I don't I don't think it's a mistake if they bring him back but i also don't think it's a mistake if they don't that is genuinely where i am that i think there's there's an argument that if you talk to the players if you're us soccer and all the players are telling you he is great We love playing for him. We love the system. We we could have done better. We could have been sharper. The mistakes were ours. If you've got players saying that, that's what you want to hear when you're talking about a manager. If you talk to the players and they're like, yeah, we didn't quite know. This didn't really work. We kind of wish this guy had been here. That also tells you some things. And so if the players feel like Greg Berhalter is the one to keep them going – I don't think that comes from a I'm, a, I'm Berhalter's favorite. I know I'll be in this team. It's not nepotism. To me, it's them saying, yeah, this is the guy for us. We want to keep this going. But if you have those concerns and the players share them about create like creating attacking chances, developing the team, developing the tactics, then I think you've got to go the other way. So that is my long-winded way of saying, uh, I don't know if the U.S. should fire Greg Berhalter. I don't think it's a mistake if they don't bring him back. But I also don't think it's a mistake if they do. Would either of you like to add any other thoughts on this one?
1: So, just in conclusion, Taylor thinks it's nepotism for Beralta to exist. Yes, that, of that's course. the summary. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Great. I mean,
0: honestly, dude, I know you're saying that in, in jest, but like, <laughs> that's part of the whole ambivalence thing. Is is the his his brother at the time being what CEO of US Soccer and a feeling like nobody else is really considered, nobody else is really hired. I will say, going back to that, it's easy in retrospect to be like, yeah, that's bad. At the time, it felt like it was going to be Berhalter from the jump, which is a criticism. But I understood it then. When you look at the other people who were discussed, I think the only... Other ones that people were really, really clamoring for were Tata, Tata Martino, who never got a call from U.S. Soccer, and you can argue that now positively or negatively. I still love Tata Martino, but it hasn't really gone well for him. Uh, maybe Oscar Pereja, maybe Todd Ramos. I think like Greg Vanny was in that conversation, who was since fired by Toronto. Like, I, So I think there's always going to be kind of up and downs there. I didn't have an issue with Greg Berhalter, Berhalter at the time. I thought he was a much more organized and, like, uh, plan-minded coach than his predecessor, and that was a thing I really, really wanted. Uh, so if he can continue to develop that and make the U.S. play better soccer than we've seen them play, then mm-hmm. yeah, keep him around. Why not? Uh, but if you are inclined to disagree, let's jump to uh, survey question number nine. Let's start with this one. Uh, would Roberto Martinez make the U.S. a better, more competitive team? 68.4% saying no, 31.6 saying yes. Twitter strongly agrees on this one the responses (laughs) were all done, Twitter literally every single person who like wrote underneath that replied to that tweet was just no and it wasn't just like (laughs) no he's bad it was no he hasn't made Belgium better no he couldn't manage a locker room uh no he couldn't get them playing effective attacking soccer I don't want to see that again so Graham I I made a joke in the beginning but I think most people seem to agree with you that Bobby Martinez is not the way forward
2: Yeah, so here's where I'm going to kind of contradict myself slightly because, no, 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 (laughs) I'm not making a case for Roberto Martinez. We're not going there. That's not where I'm going to contradict myself. But I've I've just said a lot of kind of good things about the work that Berhalter's done. But I think in many ways, Martinez would do kind of a similar job to what Berhalter's done. So he likes his teams to have the ball. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're good at that. Um, He's meant to be a good manager, a man manager, excuse me, although that completely disintegrated at the 2022 World Cup. But nonetheless, those are his two things. And there's quite a bit of overlap with Berhalter. And I would say Berhalter has done a better job of the things that Martinez is meant to be good at than Martinez. So I I can't really see a case for bringing him in at all. So I am... I'm very pleased that Twitter agrees with me that he is not the guy for the next USMT cycle. Do not trust him with another golden
0: generation. Joe asked uh, Graham this earlier. I'll ask you again. Retweet?
2: Retweet.
1: Nothing else (laughs) to add.
0: (laughs) All right. So then before we get to the uh, if Berhalter's not around, who do we realistically want as the USMT's next manager? Here's what I'll say. If they decide to renew Greg Berhalter... I will understand that the majority of people think that is a mistake, or at the very least, the majority of people don't want that. And I think it then is incumbent upon us as a show to continue to evaluate that decision as we go forward. We don't know what the schedule is going to look like. We know we've got the Olympics in 2024. Maybe there will be the Copa America, uh, which to my mind or from what I've read is basically – the U.S. needing to know if they'll be able to bring players, if if clubs will actually release them, because it doesn't really make sense to compete at the Copa Medica with like a C team for the United States. Uh, there'll be the Gold Cup, there'll be some friendlies, there'll be the Nations League, uh, but for the most part, it's not going to be a ton of games. But I, th- I still think it's really important for us to evaluate how the program is improving, developing, how the player pool is improving and developing if Greg Berhalter is there. So I think that is a thing that we'll have to keep our our eye on if that does end up being the case that he is renewed uh, because I think so many people are feeling ambivalent or negative or just outright negative about it that it's not really a thing that can be ignored but it's also not a thing that I just want to give blind credit to I think we just have to keep observing and seeing the progress and maybe that will be an episode itself about where were we sort of before the World Cup where are we after the World Cup in terms of gameplay tactics what needs to be improved who needs to be improved and then we can see how that changes as we go now with all that said if Greg Berhalter decides he doesn't want to come back or if U.S. soccer decides not, not to renew him, we asked, who would you realistically want to be the U.S. m next manager? Realistic is a term that I think some people uh, embraced and some people did not. Exhibit A, <laughs> I am on the list. <laughs> yes, Joe, Joe Lowry got a nod, which I mean, I mean, to be fair, Joe. I have to believe that if U.S. Soccer called you and said, hey, do you want yeah. the gig? You'd say yes. So, kind yeah. of realistic. one hundred percent that
1: you're gettable. 100%. Yeah. Best content ever. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but like, uh, like Yogi Lowe w- was on there a couple times. I don't know how much he would want that gig. There's a couple of people who threw out Pep Guardiola. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti is one that what I see What is he doing before. actually at the moment? Is he at like Stuttgart or something in some sort of like executive role? So, so Pep Guardiola.
1: Guardiola coaches Man City,
2: Graham, yeah. that's I know that much. <laughs> no, I'm talking about Mr. Scratch and Sniff. Ah. What's he doing at this
0: point? Yeah, I I'm mean, not sure so what you, he's you never know. Maybe they could go back to him. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Scratch Yeah, let's move past that one quickly. Well, I don't have to think about it. Lopetegui was another one that U.S. Soccer has had talks with before that people suggested. I don't know how gettable <laughs> he is at this point. So, the the top getters for this one uh, 15. We basically went with like uh, the Twitter comments uh, who people nominated. Uh, there were 15 votes for Hugo Perez and 15 votes for Jim Curtin, 11 votes for Jesse Marsh. 10 votes for Marcelo Bielsa, eight for Pellegrino Matarazzo, uh, six for Brian Schmetzer, five each for Luis Enrique and Mauricio Pochettino, and four for Marcelo Gallardo and Tab Ramos. Uh, Louis Van Gaal also got a a bunch of love. I I was surprised to see in there, though maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. I I bet if we did this poll again after that press conference where he talked about kissing Memphis on the mouth, there would be a few more nominations (laughs) for him. He'd have 16. you would be top of the list. Uh, So let's start with the top of the list then. Uh, Joe, Hugo Perez, and Jim Curtin are there. I don't feel like that's that big of a surprise. Hugo Perez has had a lot of people on his side, a lot of people advocating that he deserves a shout, uh, formerly or like uh, managing El Salvador during World Cup qualifying, uh, and has like roles with the U.S. youth teams before that. And then Jim Curtin has ha- obviously had tons of success with the union, uh, has shown an ability to implement a style and uh, get the team to buy into that style. So I'm not really surprised that either of them are top of the list. Are you surprised is the first question. And the second question is, uh, would you like either of those people to take over for Greg Berhalter?
1: Taylor, I have ceased to be surprised by Twitter mm-hmm. uh, in the distant past, so no, I'm not surprised. I, I also would not advocate for either one of them to mm. take the job. Jim Curtin, I think, is a great coach. Hugo Perez, I think, is a good coach as well. I, I think Curtin represents a deviation from the foundation that Berhalter has built that I think is worth building on. So for that reason, I, I think what, I what's would... The deviation. So Curtin and Ernst Tanner and the union are all about like Red Bull, pressy, pressy, soccer, soccer, mm-hmm. direct stuff. And the U.S. men's national team is, is not really about that. The, the possession styles are very, very different. And I would like to see the U.S. try to continue to build on that. Maybe my resolve about that point crumbles if we're talking about Jesse Marsh and I, I get a little more intrigued about that change. I'll let Graham talk about that later. I, I don't honestly know enough about yeah. Hugo Perez's tactics to say he should be involved, and I know nothing about him really as a person either. I feel like I know a bit more about Jim Curtin, so I, I don't think I'm the best person to speak on Hugo Perez. I, I think the U.S. can do better. Ultimately, that was where I, where I fall on both of those players, or on, on those managers, mm-hmm. excuse me. Although they were, both were players, so technically I was right. Ha! Suck it. Anyway, I <laughs> the, the name I'm most intrigued by, the names I'm most intrigued I think by. You just
0: invited yourself to suck it, but
1: anyway. And go I ahead. have no regrets, Taylor. I have no <laughs> regrets. Um, Luis Enrique, Graham, you tweeted me this. I woke up to this this uh, tweet He's from you on my mentions. You would never take it, right? I would be shocked. Nope. But if you can get a Luis Enrique or a Mauricio Pachettino, I think those are the kinds of managers the U.S. should Port be shooting for. Either. No, I, I would assume not, right? But like, Graham, I don't need that from
0: you. Do, don't need do, that any, do that
1: any of idea. these na- like Tab Ramos? I'm sorry, and I've spoken to Tab Ramos before. He seems like a good guy. I know he's been doing coverage of the World Cup uh, with Telemundo, I believe. Like, I, I'd failed to see anything about his tenure in Major League Soccer as a manager that says, "Wow, this is the guy." The same logic kind of goes for like. 95% of the play, of the coaches again wow man of the coaches that are on this list I just I just don't see it I don't think they represent a meaningful improvement from what the US yeah. already has so yeah the the list of coaches that I'm like I actually get excited by on this list is very very
2: short that that word there Joe meaningful is 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 key for me because there's a lot of names put forward to Jim Carton good good coach and I take your point about the difference in styles if you're going to change the style, I think you need to be certain that it is that it is that it is worth worthwhile. That you're going to get a coach that that is able to implement that style to the highest quality. And Jim Curtin has done that in MLS. I, I am just not totally convinced. There's not a great body of work beyond no. one team Agreed. for Jim Curtin that makes me think he would be able to do it at another team. Not that there was a so, Greg
1: Berhalter either, to be fair. So I mean, but the, yeah. but,
2: but the thing with Greg Berhalter, Berhalter is we have the evidence now from an actual World Cup and from a cycle. So I, I take your point. At the start of the cycle, he was in a very similar position. I just don't see the point in going back to that point. You you have two options for me. So you either you you hire a top level foreign manager if the money is there. In which case, I'm kind of stabbing in the dark at this point and, and trying to gauge who might take it. So I'd maybe give... This is the fun bit where I just spit out names and <laughs> I have no idea whether they would take it or not. But I'd give Roberto Mancini a call um, and potentially wait him out. There's a suggestion that after the Italy failed to qualify for the World Cup, he's kind of one wrinkle or, or one speed bump or bump away from losing that job. I've seen reports Fabio Cannavaro has already been lined up for that job. So it's not feasible that in early 2023 that he could be on the market. Um, another one that could potentially be on the market next summer, there's a bit of an open secret that Carlo Ancelotti will leave Real Madrid at the end of this season. He's talked about retirement being what he wants to do, so maybe he's not taking a call from anyone, but nonetheless if, if he would be a real statement and I think he is a, a very good man manager. He knows how to get the best out of attacking players. Obviously a bit vibesy, but yeah, at I'll national team level like we've seen, I, yeah, I hear you, Graham. Very vibesy, but at national team level, we've seen. I mean he's a Champions League winner. You know, he won the Champions League last season. At national team level, I'd say I'd suggest that Vibes goes even further. Uh look at France, World Cup champions. I don't think they've got a particularly strong tactical identity. So they would be the two that I'd put the call into. The other the other tactic, the other route is you go and get the best American coach that there is at the moment. And I do think it is important that you have a head coach who in some way reflects the programme as a whole and who understands the spirit of the sport in a country. That doesn't necessarily mean they have to be American, per se, but I think they have to have had an experience with American soccer. And for me, Bruce that's Arina. Jesse Marsh. Oh, yeah, Jesse Marsh. That's, that's why I Sorry. Yeah, Bruce Arena or Jesse Marsh yeah, or Caleb Porter, one of the three.
0: Oh, Joe, but not n- funny. That, that might, not n- funny, Joe. Not funny. Funny. <laughs> funny, but not funny.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, Jesse Marsh might be a boring answer. And I take Joe's point, it's a different style of play, but actually I think the Red Bull style of play football might work well for that group. I think the way you look at the quality of those players, we're talking about Christian Pulisic not being able to play in a possession-based system. Well, I think Red Bull football would work better for him. I think there's a number of players in that team that you could argue that would work better for them. So I think that would be a meaningful shift to a different style of play under a manager that we've got a body of work. And I know it didn't work for Jesse Marsh at Leipzig, and I know there are questions over Leeds United, but nonetheless, I've I've seen enough from Jesse Marsh that I think he is a good coach, who'd have a good chance of implementing that with this this group of players. Obviously, the difficult part is not just getting him out of Leeds, but getting him to leave club soccer, when he's said in the past, fairly recently, he's not ready to leave club soccer just yet. But I think there's good reason to try and sweet-talk him and throw some cash at him, and he would
0: probably be who I'd go for. All right, so Graham says Jesse Marsh. Uh, I will echo a couple of things that Joe has said. Uh, Hugo Perez is very intriguing to me. Uh, I, do, I don't I do know enough about him. I agree with you, Joe. I haven't watched enough of his team's play with an eye on, like, what is he doing? I think it's mostly been, like, what is the U.S. doing against them uh, than it has been how are they playing? How are they playing against a non-U.S. team? And so it, that that feels like a a popular selection because he has been perceived to be neglected by the Federation. He doesn't get an interview around the time that Berhalter is hired. Uh, I think oftentimes U S soccer has been fairly criticized for not doing enough to engage with the Spanish speaking population of this country and, and to sort of reach out in that way. And so I think Hugo Perez also would be certainly a manager who could do that, but has also been seen as sort of overlooked maybe for that same reason. So I think there's a lot of popular sentiment behind him that I agree with, I just don't know if he is a good enough manager or what he would bring to the team to make them better or to improve upon what Berhalter is doing. So I, I'm with you, Joe. It's an attractive idea, but I just I can't say that like I know enough of the soccer behind it. Um, I I love like Marcelo Bielsa, but again, a pressy pressy pressing team at national team level. I don't know how successful that's going to be. I also feel like he, I don't know if he would want the job or how well that yeah, would I read go that, over. I
2: read that he's going to he's uh,
0: Uruguay one right. That's We've right. got
2: better buckets in Uruguay, darn it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: I disagree with Joe. I think Carlo Ancelotti would be if it was sort of you, you can have anybody parachute in and take over the U.S. It would be Carlo Ancelotti for me. I love him. I think he is way better of a tactician than people think. But the vibes thing is agree, is what absolutely. he gets like discussed. Or what gets discussed about him. But I would extend that to, I think it was Antonio Rudiger was talking about when he and his family moved to Madrid this summer, that Carlo Ancelotti like show, showed up on moving day and like was there with a bottle of wine and hung out all day and made them feel like they were part of a unit and that sort of thing. Is, he's great at that. Exactly. And that's the thing that I think Berhalter does well and that U.S. soccer has done well historically is make people feel like they're a part of a unit, a part of a team. And the earlier you can do that, the more buying you're going to get. So I, I think Carlo Ancelotti would be incredible. I do not think he's gettable. Uh, saw some suggestions for Jose Mourinho. Don't know what to make of that. Same thing for R- Roberto Mancini. Uh, the the Of the like gettable, quote-unquote, options, the one that appeals to me the most, I don't consider Jesse Marsh to be gettable Unless things go poorly at Leeds, that's where I almost think like if they could do a two-year appointment for Greg Berhalter, and then we see where things are if the U.S. does well in the Olympics and Copa America, maybe that's a conversation. For now, if they're going with somebody tomorrow, if Greg Berhalter walks away, it's Pellegrino Matarazzo for me. Uh, again, not a not a person I have seen a ton of when it comes to his managerial experience, but I've seen enough to feel comfortable that he's a person who can get the best out of a team that isn't as good as some of the teams they're playing against. And he sets his teams up intelligently. He adjusts his tactics when he's playing bigger teams or teams that do a specific thing to try to negate that. He kept Stuttgart up with a very small payroll, uh, gets sacked the next season because it doesn't seem like he's going to be able to do that again. And maybe that's a knock against him. For me, it, it's kind of he punched above his weight for a very long time. But he's born in New Jersey. He has the American connection. He played at Columbia, I think. Uh, and then went abroad and has managed in Germany, played in Germany. Uh, and I think could be a very practical, interesting u.s oriented uh manager uh so th- that's who i would go with i liked the jim Curtin shout i like the jesse marsh shout even the brian schmetzer shout i thought was pretty interesting uh and mauricio pochettino is obviously a dream candidate as well i would love for the us to be coached by pochettino that feels like very much a statement managerial appointment i don't know if he's gettable ditto Luis enrique very much ditto carlo enchilati yeah. carlo i don't i don't think any national team gets Luis Enrique, or I
2: know he's just come from a national team, but I think it's, he, he wants in to go back into club management. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and I think Pochettino, I don't think he's ready for that at this point in his career. Has anyone looked through the transfer market available coaches list just for fun yeah. to see who's on it? The top so, of that list,
0: it was was it Gallardo who has the highest win percentage of of a an available coach? I can't remember who that was. Somebody
2: had them. Uh, on list. So points per match. So Zidane is up there for points per match. Steven Gerrard is up there. Oh, I guess Rangers. It's <laughs> a stat padding there from Stevie G. Um, but yeah, there's, 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 there's some interesting stuff. And there I got <laughs> down to Jurgen Klinsmann and then decided to stop scrolling at that point. <laughs> and Graham had had
0: enough transfer market for the day. Yeah. Uh, J- yeah. Joe, one other name uh, that was in there that is intriguing to me. I, I think it's probably too soon, but maybe maybe four years from now. Steve Chirondolo. What do you think of the idea of Steve Rondello as USMNT manager? I think and I, this is my same line of reasoning for
1: Ancelotti by the way. I think you look really good when your players are really good. That's that's my philosophy for Ancelotti. I think he's a, I think he's a good coach. You can't exist at that level for as long as he's been at that level without having a lot of really redeeming qualities. Steve Rondello came off as a very impressive guy when I was in and around that team during MLS Cup. I think he has a lot of good ideas about soccer. He's very highly regarded. In, in the U.S. and Germany as well. Certainly, Taylor, you, you know that full well, having spent a little bit more time with him, I think, even than I have. Uh, but, which is not to say I've spent a lot of time with him, by the way, like I've got an hour, maybe, max. Trundleau, I think, is a good coach. It's just too soon. I think it's too soon for him. I think it's too soon for Curtin. I think it's too soon for a lot of the MLS managers. Right now, if I'm going to go for an American coach, it's either going to be Greg Beralter or Jesse Marsh. Matarazzo is an interesting one. I, I need to research a bit more before I felt good about that. But really, I think the, the best options are are not American. So I, I'd probably look in that
0: way first. Uh, three things. Two of them are for Graham. Uh, one of them, uh, to this day, I think the highlight of my playing career remains scoring a goal off of a Steve Toronto assist in small-sided. That was pretty wonderful. He made that happen. Maybe he could make that happen for the U.S. Attacking play, baby. Uh, Graham, two questions for you. First off, uh, you said... That like Pochettino doesn't want to manage internationally yet, that it might not appeal to this person to manage international team or a national team yet for for people who are maybe like just getting into soccer. Now that like the World Cup is done, they got into the World Cup. What do you mean by that? Why isn't a national team gig as popular?
2: well i guess a lot of that is just down to the sh- the shifting perception of where the the peak of soccer is so decades ago it would it would be the world cup and you would have the best managers coaching you know national teams at the world cup i think Now, that has shifted pretty permanently to competitions like the Champions League and and, and the Premier League. So, naturally, the best managers want to be in those competitions. But also just down to the nature of international managers having a lot of time for Netflix and playing FIFA and and Football Manager. You know, it's not as engaged a a, a job as a club manager who has the same group of players every day, all season. International managers have, what, like five or six windows a, a year? And then a and then a major tournament every two years. So just from that point of view, if you are a very hands-on manager, like Mauricio Pochettino is, then that lends itself to the club game. Another out-of-work manager right now is is Thomas Tuchel. I don't think Thomas Tuchel takes a national a national team job. Not not now and potentially ever, actually, because of the way he is he's a very hands-on coach. So you're looking that naturally uh lends itself a little bit more. The national te- the, the international game lends itself to Slightly more vibesy managers like like Ancelotti, who maybe aren't so hands on. Um, someone like Gareth Southgate is a perfect example. Gareth Southgate, you could argue, and I can't believe I'm about to make this point, you could argue that Gareth Southgate is kind of the ideal national team manager in that he's not a hands-on tactician, but he is a good public speaker. He knows how to cultivate a good, a healthy dressing room where the, the team is you know gets on and there's not a rift between the management and and, and the players. And that's kind of what you're looking for with, with national team managers, and that tends to be, in terms of who you'll look to to take those jobs, it'll be managers starting out, like, well, I know Berhalter had an MLS job, but he's still relatively young in, in his managerial career, or you're looking to the veterans who are maybe, they don't have the stamina for a, for a club job anymore to, to be on the training pitch day after day that's kind of your options and then there's a vacuum in between which is why it's notable when you have someone like Luis Enrique be Spain manager for 3 years that that doesn't happen very often he is he is an anomaly in international football so that kind of limits US soccer's options you go for a young manager in which case you're just repeating the cycle with Berhalter or you go for a veteran manager who is maybe not at the vanguard of what is tactically current right now? And again, again, Graham is Graham is describing
1: Bruce Arena. I I feel like that is the <laughs> obvious choice here. I can't see what could possibly go wrong. Can
0: I mute? Can I mute Joe? How do I? You mute? can actually. Um. Yeah, you can, you can. <laughs> oh, Bruce Arena. Uh, I will say I've long felt like Jesse Marsh wouldn't want to leave the Premier League for the USMNT gig. I I do wonder these days if he's spent so much time in in his recent career being. Uh, sort of torn apart publicly and like the debate of, is he going to be sacked? Is he going to be sacked? Is he going to be sacked? I could, I could see after a couple years getting tired of that. And with the USMNT, it's four years pretty much guaranteed. Yeah. I could see how that would appeal to him right now. I still think if a coach has a a opportunity to manage their national team or a Premier League team, they're going to go Premier League first because that feels like a springboard to more things down the road And then you you go to the national team side of things. The other question I had for you, Graham, I know we're going long, so I will stop asking sub-questions after this, but Joe and I obviously have bias here, have a a vested interest in the U.S. men's national team. You do to some extent, but less so than the two of us. So I'll ask you, in your opinion, how attractive of a job would this be? If Greg Berhalter walks away and there's a USMNT vacancy right now, do you think Somebody like Roberto Roberto Mancini is maybe turning his head just a little bit to look at it. Like, how alluring do you think it is? Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes we think it's the best job in the world, and it's not.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think it's the best job in the world, but I do think leading up to the 2026 World Cup, it is very attractive for managers. There is uh, this idea of this being a, a U.S. golden generation has kind of transcended American borders. That is something that is spoken about in in British media. I can imagine it's spoken about in German media where a lot of the, the players are playing there as well. So that makes it attractive as well. And then the other thing the US has in its favour, and look, this, sometimes this is painted in a, in a bad light, this is maybe detrimental in terms of the people that you attract to American soccer, is the, is, is the culture and the lifestyle. You know, someone like Roberto Mancini, I was Googling earlier does he have an apartment in New York? Because managers like Pep Guardiola, I'm not suggesting for a minute Guardiola's going to take that job, but we all know when he had his sabbatical year, he went and lived in New York. He has an apartment in New York. I think there's a a good number of footballing people who they go to Miami they go to Los Angeles and that is a, f- a factor you know you can make that part of your pitch. Is you're going to have time in between international windows and obviously international managers do have stuff to do between games and training sessions but nonetheless you're going to live in, in, in America I know Jurgen Klinsmann he he already lived in America right before yeah, he got the job yeah but nonetheless, he, he wanted to live in America. You know, he doesn't live in Germany. He lives in California because of the lifestyle. So that does make the U.S. – it broadens the pool slightly as opposed to, say, Scotland. We're not
0: exactly selling anyone on the culture and the, on the lifestyle of, of Scotland when we're attracting a foreign manager. Iron brew and meat pies. You just got to get people to understand what iron brew is more, and then maybe people will be in on it. But right exactly. now, limited supply of iron brew, I'm not sure that's pulling in international managers. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, and you'll you'll meet Ewan McGregor every so often and James McAvoy maybe once every year or something. We could arrange that. And Ang Postacoglu did get a shout for USMT Manager, by the way, Graham. Oh, I quite like that. I had a feeling you would. I'm <laughs> going to move it yeah. swiftly on before Grant that spends work. <laughs> 15 minutes talking about the enchpasta Uh Joe, final survey question. Which player who missed the 2022 World Cup squad do you most want to see? Uh, now, this was an interesting one in that uh, there were three options and then there was someone else and someone else... Was close to finishing second on this one. The runaway leader was Ricardo Pepe with uh, 64.4% of the vote. Georgi Mihailovic in second with 17. Gagas Lenina in third with 4.4%. Joe, everybody wants to see Ricardo Pepe. I'm going to assume a lot of that has to do with the U.S. not scoring a bunch of goals at the World Cup.
1: It certainly seems that way, doesn't it, Taylor? I think that is probably a fair connection. Can I, can I cheat and have my answer be a person who's currently not eligible to represent the U.S. but could be
0: eligible? Well, you can. Can I ask you a question before you do that? Yeah, please. How many times did you vote in this poll? And is the answer uh, three? Uh, no, I, <laughs> I didn't vote any at all in this poll. Well, Joe is a sure. liar because uh, Falara and Balogun got three votes. Oh, and I'm going to assume all of those were Joe.
1: There it is, baby. Wow. Good work from you, Taylor. That's really, really, really well done on your part. My answer is Balogun. I I don't think we'll see him anytime soon, so he needs to file a one-time switch to represent the U.S. He's played official youth competitions for England at the youth level. Credit to Daniel Smith for helping me understand why he needed to file a one-time switch because I still don't understand how those rules work, despite Taylor having listened to your soccer one on one episode literally three times after the rule changes were made. It's a good episode after I'm voting. Just, each vote Joe
0: <laughs> voted and then listened to
2: that episode. Right. Yeah. vote again, listen to that episode again.
0: I can't tell if
1: that was
2: uh,
0: praise for that episode. No, it's, or it's really really good. Shade I was episode. about to follow it
1: up with the fact that I just can't remember. There's there's so many details and you did a great job of distilling them. Anyway, Balogun on loan in Ligue 1 from Arsenal has eight goals in in just over a thousand minutes this year underlying numbers at least on the XG side look good and from the film that I've watched he looks like a really assertive promising striker again 21 years old so I would love to see Balogun. I think that's probably just going to be another name to add to the number nine soup if he does decide to pick the U.S. over England but I think frankly he's a better player right now hands down than Ricardo Pepe and he might be a better number nine prospect as well even though I still do have relatively high hopes for Pepe I I would love to see
0: Balogun in a U.S. shirt uh Agree. Uh, I want to talk about Balogun and the number nine uh, stuff in a second. I want to say Ricardo Pepe was one that I think we all thought would be on the roster. He wasn't. I, I did find myself wondering if in that game against the Dutch, would he have been a good start? Would he have been a useful player to have? We've talked about maybe why, uh, Berhalter went with other options there. Uh, but I, I also wanted to mention there was the video of him, like putting on a Netherlands Jersey and, and dancing when the Dutch won that I think has been spun a few different ways as him being critical of Berhalter, taking shots at Berhalter. His camp was reportedly very angry that he wasn't called in. And to me, that felt like his agent was publicly saying he should have been included because that's what agents do. And, by all accounts, Ricardo Pepe placed a bet with a Dutch teammate uh, that if the U.S. lost, he would put on a Dutch jersey and do a silly dance, and that's why he did that. So I've definitely seen a few accounts being like, here he is celebrating the U.S. loss. I don't think that's what that was, but I am excited for Ricardo Pepe's uh, next season, either if that loan gets made permanent or if he if he goes back and and kind of tries to challenge at Augsburg or gets a different move somewhere else and, and finds form. But Pepe leading the way in the voting was not surprising. What I think is also really interesting and and a thing that Joe was talking about when it comes to the number nine uncertainty, the two positions that I feel like people are most uncertain about right now would be striker and would be center back. Here, uh, Ricardo Pepe obviously winning the vote. The top vote-getter, like the write-in column, was Chris Richards. He had 15 votes. Uh, in second place split was uh, Jordan Pefock with nine votes, Miles Robinson with nine votes. Then Taylor Booth got six, Dar- then Daryl DK with four, and then Austin Trustee and uh, Fallon Baligan with three apiece. So of the winner, Ricardo Pepe, and then the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven write-in candidates, so that's eight total. I think it's only one of them wasn't a striker or a centre-back. And I think that shows where people have their eyes because everywhere else there's a lot of youth, there's a lot of depth, or at least a decent amount of depth. But centre-back and striker is where I think a lot of people are going to be focused for the next uh, four years, it seems, Graham.
2: Yeah, and I think that is understandable given what we've just seen from the uh, from the World Cup. I I personally need closure on jordan (laughs) peafock that needs to happen at at some point i i still feel very strongly that he should have gone to the world cup and sorry i was slightly preoccupied there because i was trying to re i'm sure i saw something that said in the group stage of this world cup the u.s played more crosses than any other team and i can't quite find it again i'm sure i'm sure they played something like yeah it was it was either first or second in that list i think it was first as well so that makes me think having Peefock as an option, I think that's one of his greatest strengths, is particularly the near post as is, is, is attacking crosses into the box and I don't think it reflected well in Berhalter that he, he didn't have that option and Peefock sat at home and, and watched this World Cup, particularly when the number nine pool was was so fluid and we had three different players start games at this World Cup. Um, so Peefock is one. I, I Maybe he's not the guy for the US. I'll hold my, hold my hands up and say he, maybe he's not a good fit, but I, I want to see him given a, a more of a chance. I know he's had a little bit of a chance and I want to see early in a cycle. Um can I also vouch for a player who was actually in the squad and did actually play a game in terms of, like, becoming a more important... I'm going to become a parody of myself here. Has any, can anyone guess which player I'm going to say I want to see become a key player for the US going forward? Three-letter abbreviation. C C V starts with C, ends with a V. Yeah. Um. So I feel quite strongly that he's probably the most naturally talented centre-back the US currently has, and I understand he wasn't involved much in qualifying, and so it was a risk to have him come in late. But I have watched him loads these past two seasons and, I, and I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I think he's so much better in the ball than he was when he arrived at Celtic. He's physically strong. He reads the game well. I think we saw that in the Iran match. He's not the tallest, so he's not exceptional in there, but I think the, the other areas of his game make him a good fit for the US. And so I think put him in the cycle now. Ideally, I would have Richards on the left. I know there's fitness issues with him, but I'd have Richards and CCV, CCV being the right-sided centre-back, and that would be the centre-back pairing that I would try and kind of build around. Um, And I think CCV can be, he can get even better. I think he's got a couple extra levels still to go. I think we'll see him in the Premier League again at some point. I think that move will happen. So yeah, CCV, even though I'm cheating with my answer a little bit there because he was very much in the squad and started a game. But nonetheless, in terms of key players after this World Cup, I want to see more of him.
0: I like it. I like Richards, CCV, Robinson, and Trusty as our 2026 center backs. I should add, I did miss a player in there. So I said uh, Taylor Booth got six, Daryl DK got four. Uh, In between them is Brandon Vasquez, who got five. Uh, Joe, I'm going to guess you're okay with Brandon Vasquez being on that list.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd like to see Brandon Vasquez. I'm not going to burn down uh, the house if that doesn't happen. I can understand reasons why he wasn't brought up this cycle, and I can really even understand if he's not brought up at some point next cycle. I would like to see him in January camp, though. That feels like the obvious time. And then if he shows something, you, you continue to evaluate. But I do like Vasquez, and I reserve the right to advocate for him more aggressively
0: in the future should I decide to do so. There we go. But Balogun number one in your heart right now. Always. Always and forever until I change my mind. (laughs) Always and forever until I change my mind. That should be the (laughs) motto of U.S. Soccer Twitter, of U.S. Soccer Fandom, and of this program. We have gone very long, but it feels appropriate for this episode. We really appreciate everybody who gave us their answers and gave us some good insight into how people are feeling. It feels like the general sentiment is like, yeah, it's okay. And that's not where we were before the World Cup. So I will take that one. We'll see how things go over the next month or so. Obviously, we will continue to cover the World Cup. We've got games tomorrow and Saturday. We've got the final, or semifinals and then the final next week. So we're going to be covering those. We'll take a break over the holidays. We'll do some different shows. We'll be back in the new year, but we're not going anywhere in between. So for now, with all that said, Joe Lowry, thank you for talking about the USMNT for what appears to be over an hour and a half.
1: Yeah, right back at you, Taylor. This was fun.
0: And Graham Ruffin, special thanks to you for doing the same thing since you uh, <laughs> you have maybe less of an interest. But you know what? We're getting you there. I feel like we're pulling Graham in to supporting the U.S. He's doing shoeys all the time. He had a flag draped around him. Graham, honorary American, honorary American of the TSS uh, episode. Thank you so much. Thank you, Taylor Roth. Well, yeah, they are very much my yes. uh, my team, my second team at yes, this point. Yes, and CCV chief among them. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will talk to you all again soon.